Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the pause in the Gaza war and the exchange of prisoners with 50 hostages released, mostly women and children, and foreign nationals in exchange for 150 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. Joining us to discuss how, in spite of the short lull in fighting, over 2 million people are still facing dire shortages of food, water, medical treatment, shelter and safety. Joining us is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. His latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Then, with Thanksgiving approaching, we will look into what we can be thankful for in terms of an improvement in the economy and speak with Dean Baker, Senior Economist and Co-Founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where he has an article which we will discuss, things about the economy to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. Then finally we'll go to Spain to look into similarities with the U.S. inasmuch as Spain's civil war never ended, and neither did the American Civil War. Joining us is Toby Miller, a professor of journalism at the Universidad Complutense de Madrid in Spain, as well as a research professor of the graduate division at the University of California, Riverside. His most recent books are A COVID Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, Colombian Popular Culture, and How Green Is Your Smartphone, and we'll discuss, as a lesson for the Democratic Party, how the left in Spain self-destructed and fragmented, then was rebuilt to now hold power. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. Please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude. He is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Baer. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Israeli cabinet have been meeting as and as we speak. The assumption is that the deal will be made to have a pause four or five days in the Gaza war in exchange for a prisoner swap. 
with 50 hostages released, mostly women and children, and foreign nationals in exchange for 150 Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. And Prime Minister Netanyahu went on Israeli television and said they were close to a deal. But this does not mean that they're going to stop the war. He made that very, very clear. So uh, what's your reading on this? Because there's still two million, more than two million civilians stuck in that tiny strip of land that is being turned into rubble and uh, they are facing dire shortages of food, water, medical treatment, shelter and safety. Well, I, I think the Israelis have made it very clear that they will stop at nothing to decapitate Hamas or even go farther. But don't don't forget Gaza is Hamas. There is no Palestinian authority there. There's no alternative to Hamas. So you're just taking the entire structure, governmental structure, and removing it. And in order to do that, you need to take all of Gaza. And, you know, that includes the hospitals, all infrastructure, transportation, communications, everything. Israelis are going to have to go in and just remove everybody. I mean, it's, it's a Herculean a task, which I'm not even sure can be accomplished. But in the meantime, the humanitarian catastrophe will get much worse. You just count on it because there's no emergency treatments now in, in, in Gaza at all. Nothing. So that means premature babies, the wounded, the rest of it are, are just they're not getting treated. So you can expect the casualties in Gaza to just go up geometrically over the next months. Well, they're already at just uh, you know tragically high numbers, particularly of children. So, can Israel kill these thirty thousand Hamas fighters? Is that will that end it for them? That seems to be their end game. And I assumed uh, earlier on that this would be a quick war because of the overwhelming power of the Israeli military, with almost four hundred thousand reservists called up. I never thought, you know, I never thought it'd be quick. I mean, you just have to fight apartment by apartment and tunnel by tunnel. You you can't, when they do an entry into an apartment building, they can't go through the front door because they assume it's booby trapped. So they have to blow a wall. Uh, you have to breach a wall and then you breach another wall. Then you breach another wall and it's just building by building. Um, they will take casualties in this. They've, they've barely taken any part of Gaza City, and it's only going to get worse when they go down to the camps in the south. I mean, this is just, it's like nothing we've ever seen, um, taking Gaza like this. And you have to look at it from the Israeli standpoint. We may just say, this is, my God, this is awful. But what happened on 7th of October uh, for Israelis was an existential threat. It, it, they do refer to it as, as you know, as, uh, uh, you know, part of the Holocaust in a way. So, I mean, this is why it's it's so tragic, the situation. There's no easy out. I don't see any negotiations going ha- to end this. I don't see Hamas giving up, um, uh, you know, it, and, and then you're going to have more generations of these Palestinians that are, are just are going to remember people, relatives lost, everybody's lost somebody. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Netanyahu went on television uh, tonight in Israel and said they're going to continue the war until the end, and it could go on for a long time. 
So, so much for the idea that they could end it early, which I initially thought was a possibility. But uh, you're clearly right that it's a, this is an ongoing tragedy. And given the trauma that the Israeli state has gone through because of what happened on that horrible day, now, what, 40-something day, days ago, obviously the Jewish state was set up as a place where Jews could be safe, and that has been uh, shattered, and presumably they're trying to reestablish some form of deterrence, but in doing so, they're absolutely turning the world against Israel, and by extension, the United States. And uh, Joe Biden did mention earlier on that the, he gave Israel the warning that, that to some extent, back on 9-11, we took bin Laden's bait, and look what happened. We broke Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but we didn't conquer the enemy or extinguish the threat. So he warned uh, Biden, Netanyahu, about just pure revenge. Uh, and frankly, this looks like pure revenge. It is, in a way. It's, it's, it's a, an overwhelming retaliation for an attack on Israel has kept Israel fairly safe in in in, ter- in its terms. You just cannot re- not respond to an attack like Seventh October, and this is in part of the body politic in Israel, which isn't going to change. I mean, you, you you the thing about Israel or the Palestinians, you and I can't really understand what what the trauma is that they've gone through. So I I myself, you know, just don't attempt to evaluate that, but. I spent so much time in, in Israeli prisons talking to Hamas, and, and, and you know, I'll never forget one man that tried to blow himself up, and the vest didn't go off. And, and I asked him point blank, I said, well, if you got out of jail now, you've been here and treated fairly well in an Israeli prison, what would you do? He said, I'd strap on another belt and go out and blow myself up and kill as many Israelis as I could. And when I talked to the Hamas you know, people blew up restaurants, things like that. I said, but you, you killed children. You killed, you know, it was, I don't know, it was like 23 children, 21 children in, in Haifa. And what, what, I mean, what were you thinking about? And he says, well, they're going to grow up to be Israeli soldiers. And that's the calculation. And then you have to look at the Israelis on their side. You're saying, well, yeah, of course we're retaliating against everybody because these people are going to grow up to be terrorists. So it's we're, we're you know it's sort of mirror imaging each other, and this is why there's there's no solution to it. And and what surprises me in is the Israelis, the surprise attack on seven October. I really did think that that their intelligence was better. They had some clue that this was coming coming their way, but they didn't. And this all this money they put into the border wall between Gaza and southern Israel. It was just a great ripoff as far as I can see. And the Israelis know it. And this means that their society is going to go through terrible trauma during this war and afterwards. I mean, political upheaval like you've never seen. But when you say there's no solution, probably because of what's been happening for the last 75 years, right? And now it's culminated with Netanyahu and his religious nationalists who have these messianic visions of, uh, you know, greater Israel. And again, (laughs) from the river to the sea, the same claim that Hamas has. 
And all I can tell what their policy is or their end game is to make life so hard for the Palestinians that they will slink off like beaten dogs and become someone else's problem. And that seems to be what the strategy with uh, Gaza is. Yeah, it sounds like the Europeans, when they took the North, North America, just ran the Indians off. I mean, this, this is, you know, there's no moral superiority in any of this, really, on anybody's part. But I, the only salute, and I said this, like, very quickly after October 7th, I don't advocate it, is that they're going to, that Palestine, Gaza, the Palestinians, the only peace that's ever going to be, you know, in our, in our lifetime is if they set up in the Sinai into Egypt. I know this is unacceptable. It's Nakba, which is, you know, the great defeat for the Palestinians. But I don't, who's going to, who's going to pay to govern Gaza after this is over? Who's going to pay to rebuild for 2.3 million people? And in 2.3 million people who are, feel humiliated and humiliation is the wellspring of savagery, and they're going to, and they're going to hit, you know, Israeli calling, you know, kibbutz again. I mean, I, I, this is it doesn't. I know it sounds very negative, Ian, but I don't really see an alternative to this. Um, there's not all international problems are are solvable. Right, but instead, after '67, and you, and as you know. The military leadership, who, by the way, are the ones behind the two-state solution. The, you know, it was Yehoshaphat Hoshafat Akabi, the head of military intelligence, and Rabin and others, generals. They came up with the two-state solution because they thought it was an imperative for Israel's security. But then you've got the Netanyahu right-wingers who... who have yeah, a, well, look they, what happened to the, the Rabin. He was, he yeah. was assassinated. Right, but... But, but the but, people, the settlers, the settlers aren't... Are, are not the same Israelis, the secular ones that I spend a lot of time with. They truly believe that God gave them the West Bank. And if God gives you something, you can't give it away. And clearly, Resolution 242 in 1967 was the only possible solution, but then you couldn't have the settlements. But but there was never any intention of, of the settlers to obey 242. Right, you know, but what just, they've done just, is 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 the very humiliation that you're talking about. They have been meeting that out. They get a kind of thrill out of humiliating the Palestinians. I don't understand that. Uh, they do. Well, they they think that they're that they are occupying their land. That they're like, you know, less people. They're intruders. This is the way they're treated. But if you go in with that mindset that these people are intruders that this goes back to the, the second temple or whenever they, they, they think that this was given up. Um, it, it's a mentality that we don't understand. So like evangelical Christians, I mean, right. the, the, their support, I mean, they, they talk about end times and that, that Israel, the Jews have to occupy Israel, including the West bank for the rapture or end times. I'm not even, I'm not an expert on this, but I mean, so you had this religious element up against Hamas, which, which there's no question there's zealots. And on 7th October, they acted like Daesh, like the Islamic State. They just did. I mean, whether you're pro-Palestinian or anti-Palestinian, they did. They killed women, children, shot people randomly. And by the way, Hezbollah doesn't do that. Have you ever noticed? Mm-hmm. They're, all, they're shooting at military targets. They've always done that. And when they fought the Israelis... 
1982 on, it was all military targets they hit. They didn't cut off heads. They didn't do this. They were very much organized because they're Shia Muslims. And people just totally forget the difference between Shia and Sunni. The Sunnis say, you know, just go out there and slaughter um, when, they, when they're humiliated and feel under pressure. It's, it's a very strange phenomenon, but it does exist. But there is an historical example of doing it the other way than the Israelis did once they captured all this territory, particularly after 67. And that is what happened uh, where the U.S. and the Marshall Plan and the Allies re-educated and rehabilitated the conquered people of Germany and Japan. Yeah, but... it, 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 but the problem is, and this is very simplistic, it's two people, one, one country, you know. And the, the Palestinians and the settlers were never going to get along, no matter how, Marshall Plan or whatever. Um, and, it, and it, just face it, Hamas believes in the destruction of Israel. They truly believe in that because they think this is a great injustice and the land was stolen from them. Um, so they look at each other as, as intruders. Uh, and you know this mindset is, is not going in. They're not going to come to reason on any of this. I don't see that. Well, it's obviously uh, possible that it could get a lot of wor- lot worse. And the you know the U.S. Have, uh, Biden has sent over envoys, uh, and also the Secretary of Defense has been warning his Israeli counterpart not to provoke. Hezbollah, and that seems to be a very dangerous thing. There's already Hezbollah fired a bunch of rockets that that destroyed an Israeli um, military post, and they also went after a, a, a factory owned by a, con- a military contractor, Raphael. So, I mean, Netanyahu has always had this project then he's that he wants to drag the US into into a war in the Middle East in order to get rid of Iran. We'll get rid of Hamas, but we need you to get rid of Iran or the Ayatollahs. Um, do you think that's at play here? Oh, I think it's absolutely at play. You look at the Wall Street Journal op-ed page. It's, you know, it's Iran is the problem. Even people that I know who should know better say, hey, yeah, if we just got rid of Iran, this would all go away, which is just utter complete nonsense. You know, it's when the Intifada started in 87, Iran had nothing to do with it. In the second Intifada, Iran had next to nothing to do with it. And and you go right down the line, but all of a sudden saying the problem's Iran, and if the United States takes on Hezbollah in Iran, and we'll finish off the Palestinians, that's a dream. But, uh, you know, I, w- w- will the Americans agree to something that would, would look very much like World War III? I don't know anymore. Well, it's clearly hurting Biden, isn't it, internationally? And the U.S. diplomacy is rattled, and uh, even APAC is well, is completely uh, shattered. They don't know what to do because all these young Americans are turning to their support uh, away from Israel to the Palestinians. Yes, and it and and they and they, and they should worry about anti-Semitism. And let's not forget the Arabs are Semites too. But that's a, that's another that's another question. Uh, but you know, it's it, it, it's it's we are at the threshold of a, of a huge overturning of American policy because we are no longer an honest broker in the Middle East anywhere. I don't, you know, American ambassadors, I'm sure right now are being frozen out. I mean, you know, everywhere except Tel Aviv. I mean, we, we've got nothing to offer to the solution. We can't control Netanyahu or the Israelis. 
I mean, they just, you know, every time they hit a hospital and we complain privately, they say, look, we're, we're just, we're, we're, we've got intercepts, we've got drones, we know these guys are running into these hospitals, we have to kill them, or they're going to kill us, and then we go, oh, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's the, the, it, what we can, don't forget is that Hamas is operating underground. It doesn't have a command center anywhere. So when 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 the mainstream press says, watch out for, you know, we have to get rid of these command centers and we can win the war. Yeah, but what happened to the one under Shifa? It's, we don't hear any more about that the last couple of days because they don't have one. It's a guerrilla group. It's just like when we hit North Vietnam, we always said, oh, there's some sort of command center. If we remove that, we'll win the war. You know, we we all the French made that mistake in Vietnam, you know, it, it, over and over and over again. Same way with Iraq, you know. Well, it, it, it's yeah. Go on. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but um, I think you've made a very cogent point, and I thank you for joining us, Sir Robert Bear. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Baer, one of the most accomplished agents in CIA history and the winner of the Career Intelligence Medal. He's the author of four New York Times bestsellers, including Sleeping with the Devil, How Washington Sold Our Soul for Saudi Crude, and is considered one of the world's foremost authorities on the Middle East and is an intelligence and national security affairs analyst for CNN. And his latest book is The Fourth Man, The Hunt for a KGB Spy at the Top of the CIA and the Rise of Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break, and with Thanksgiving approaching, we will look into what we can be thankful for in terms of an improvement in the economy. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dean Baker, a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where he has an article, Things About the Economy to Be Thankful for This Thanksgiving. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on, Ian. So, Dean, before we get to what we should be thankful for in terms of an improving an economy, uh, it still seems to be that Biden is dogged by the fact that even though he's had a number of achievements in turning the economy around, if not quite impressive achievements, it doesn't seem to be translating to the broad uh, American people many of whom don't think things are great. Uh, and I guess, you know, you've got 40% of the country living, you know, a, a $400 uh, emergency bill away from penury. Yeah, well, he's not gotten credit. And, you know, the, I have a lot of back and forth with people, obviously. Things are not great for a lot of people, but that's always true. So it was true in nineteen in 2019, and yet pe- most people said the economy was good. And by historical standards, that was true. So it was a bear in 2019, then in 2018, 2017. Answer, yes. Um, so my comparison, when I'm looking at the economy, I go, okay, 223, is the economy great? Well, a lot of people are suffering. 
Is it better than it was in 2019 before the pandemic? Yes, it was by almost every measure you could think of. So when people are saying, oh, so-and-so is working three jobs, uh, sure, a lot of people have it real tough. But realistically, the world's not, it's not going to turn around. Everyone's going to have it great. The question is, are we doing better now than we were before the pandemic? And the answer is we are, which is very, very impressive. So does the James Carville adage, it's the economy stupid, apply to the 2024 election, do you think? Well, people will vote based on their perceptions of the economy. And I emphasize their perceptions because whether their perceptions correspond to reality, that may or may not be the case. Now, I've had a lot of people tell me, well, you can't lie to people about the price of gas. Well, I just saw a poll that said, most people don't believe the price of gas has fallen. So I guess you can lie to them about the price of gas because it has fallen. We collect a lot of data on that. It's a lot lower than it was at its peak in the summer of last year. So, you know, people will vote based on their perceptions. I'm an economist. I could talk about the reality. I can't deal with how people happen to think crazy things about the economy. So let's talk about the reality then. Uh, inflation is down, right? Uh, I think the only other country in, in the advanced economies that's doing better at 3% is Japan, but the U.S. Is, is, is second after Japan, isn't it? Yeah, and we're just a little bit uh, a little bit higher in Japan. Actually, before the last one's down, we are a little bit lower. But yeah, I mean, Japan for, for the last 25 years has been struggling with an inflation rate that was too low. So it's kind of striking that we're neck and neck with Japan. But we have a lower inflation rate than Germany, than Canada, than, than, than France, Italy. Pick your country. Um, there may be another one out there that's lower, a smaller country. But if you think of the major countries, we're lower than all of them. And uh, again, this is one of the aspects of the economy that people miss or they don't care. I don't know. But the pandemic disrupted the economy everywhere. And I compare it to a hurricane. If we had just been hit with a hurricane and destroyed a lot of the housing, well, everyone will understand. Well, we have a problem with housing because the hurricane just destroyed it. Well, we have a problem or had a problem with inflation. It's largely under control now. But we had a problem with inflation because of a worldwide pandemic. And again, you know, you could blame Biden if you want, but he wasn't the one that gave us the pandemic. Right, but he did, in response, give us the you know uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips Act, and and the earlier stimulus. Yeah, exactly. So it could have been even better had Joe Manchin not taken away the child tax credit. That showed uh, ha- that was one of the most effective pieces of government legislation, lifting millions out of poverty. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's why people give him bad marks. I mean, I. I I think it was unfortunate. Well, it was definitely unfortunate it went away. It went away, of course, because the Republicans wouldn't support extending it. So the child tax credit was there through uh, through 221. It went away in 222, and it, it did exactly what you want to do. It hugely reduced child poverty rate. It made a big difference for, for families with children, particularly low-moderate income families with children. That was a really great thing, but it didn't get extended. Again, you know, again, when I was saying you could blame Biden, they could have written the, the original recovery package that they got through in February just after he was elected. They could have written that so that it, it, it was permanent or at least two years, three years. Um, so that was a mistake. I, I, I know people in the administration, they thought they would have no problem renewing it. They didn't realize that Manchin 
uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia hated it um, for crazy reasons. Yeah, I'm sorry, reasons that don't make sense. He's say, you know, saying people use it all for drugs. You know, it, it, there was no evidence for that. But anyhow, they needed his vote and they didn't have it. So they couldn't extend it. But, any, but you know, again, if you want to blame Biden for having made a mistake there, but we wouldn't have had the child tax credit at all had it not been for Biden. But, of course, a lot of economists, right-wing economists and right-wing pundits argue that inflation was caused by Biden's social programs to get us out of the hole created by COVID. But there's an alternative uh, scenario, surely, and I'd like to get your opinion on this. Didn't corporate America take advantage and, and gouge prices, and that led to inflation, particularly with the prices of food, etc.? Well, there, there, there's a couple issues here. Um, one was the extent to which having a, a very generous uh, recovery package, which it was. Uh, we all got uh, $1,200 checks from, or no, it was $1,400, I'm sorry, from Biden's package and uh, very generous unemployment benefits. You know, so, so there are a lot of things in there that were certainly generous, way more, more generous than we've traditionally been with the welfare state. And that helps sustain demand, and that undoubtedly was a factor in inflation. Um, it wasn't the major factor. The major factor was clearly the disruption of supply chains, and that, that was something that was hotly debated. And it wasn't just right-wing economists who said that. Larry Summers, who's um, very much in the center of the profession, he was in top of positions in both the Clinton and Obama administration, so he's not right-wing by any stretch of the imagination. He was very critical that he called it the worst fiscal policy in 40 years. We're going to have uh, spiraling inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that proved not to be true. Now, were corporations increasing their profits? Absolutely. Um, so I don't even think that's a debatable point. Um, the question is, should we have expected otherwise? And we could argue that. I mean, I, I as I say, I, I would follow the data closely. Their profits went up. There, there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, they're in business to make a profit. So you give them an opportunity to make a lot of money. Should we be surprised that they took it? Um, we might be unhappy they took it. But again, that that goes with the terrain, in my view. So again, I mean, if someone wants to criticize corporate America for making out like bandits, I'm not going to argue with them. But uh, the reality was, if if we didn't have such a generous stimulus package, they would have less opportunity to make out like bandits. So given that we have a Christian nationalist now in charge of the House and the right wing or the far right Freedom Caucus are demanding massive cuts in the budget and we dodged a bullet, uh, at least uh, Mike Johnson was able to rely on Democratic votes in order to uh, stop a ridiculous self-inflicted wound of shutting down the government. So we're not out of the woods here, but what do you think that these guys are going to do now where they're determined to just slash federal spending at ridiculous levels. And what will be the consequences of that? Well, I'm absolutely certain Biden won't go along with that. I'm absolutely certain that the Senate will not go along with that. So they will not get that through. So the story we'd be looking at is a government shutdown. And the my guess is that Biden is prepared to take as long as it as is necessary to get something like what we have now in terms of spending levels. Will he, at the end of the day, agree to some fig leaf so that uh, Johnson could say, oh, I won? He might. Hopefully that fig leaf won't be anything much. But he's not going to agree, you know, if they want to have these big cuts to spending, 
No one on earth Biden is going to agree to that. And in fact, I think he'd be very happy to sit down and have the election in, in 224 based on here's the, the party of chaos. They shut down the government. Um, and, and for them, a lot of the Republicans, I think that literally is the goal. They want to shut down the government. They think that's an end in itself. And uh, again, I think Biden will be happy to have the election based on that. Well, maybe a lot of Republicans actually don't want to destroy the economy and slash Medicare, Medicaid, Medicaid and uh, Social Security and all of the uh, other draconian cuts that they're talking about. Uh, but I think this trade-off, if you say they'll, they'll offer something cosmetic to throw a bone to, the, to Johnson in order to placate the uh, Freedom Caucus, which I'm not sure is, is even possible, it would be about the border, surely. I mean, that's what they want. They want to militarize and put a wall up right, right across the south of America. They might. Uh, Biden might well agree to something on the border. Um, he's already indicated that. So um, that that may well be the outcome of it. Um, so I don't uh, again whether that would be enough because the Republicans really want to run on 224. They want the border to be a big, if not the big issue for them. And if they agree to something with Biden on it, then it becomes harder for them to make that their issue. But Biden's already indicated he's prepared to make concessions and probably a lot more than many of us would like to see. But just in the last couple of minutes, though, given the gains by labor with the UAW, etc., is that improving the political climate for Biden if, if the Democrats can make an issue out of we support labor and Labor has shown that they can deliver. Well, I'm sure the unions will be very heavily for Biden. I mean, he has delivered for them. The the United Auto Workers, obviously, he walked the picket line with them. Obviously, it's symbolic, but that's the point. He's with them. Uh, Trump went to Michigan the next day and said, oh, you guys are wasting your time. That's stupid. Uh, literally, I mean, uh, not those exact words, but I mean, he basically said the strike was, was silly and that um, it was all about uh, Biden's pushing electric vehicles. And if they didn't do that, they'd all have good, high paying jobs. So um, Biden should be able to make a lot of that. He's been the most pro-union president probably ever. I mean, you could argue whether Roosevelt was as pro-union, but um, he, he's clearly stood behind unions and the unions, I'm sure, will back him. The uh, question is how many votes that will mean at the end of the day, because uh, obviously unions don't represent as many people as they used to. Um, but unions, I'm sure, will be very solidly behind Biden in 224. And non-unions like the, the car companies in the South, are they going to uh, wake up and smell the greenbacks? Well, if they're not a union, they're not. Uh, the important thing about union is they have direct um, lines of communication, their membership. And we've seen that there's been a lot of polling data. So this is my speculation. We've seen that that union voters, if you pick a state, you, you know, hold, you know, you're looking at white people or black people more for white people than for blacks. It makes a huge difference as to whether they vote Democratic or not. So um, where they're actually unionized, it does make a difference. And again, that's because the union's in contact with them. They're telling their members, look, uh, this this person's behind us. They're with us where you're in the South and people are working in auto factories that aren't unionized. Um, do they recognize? Because you did have Toyota already announced they're increasing wages. I'm sure we're going to see wage gains. I think Honda also was saying that they're going to increase their wages. And clearly a direct response. I may not say it, but it's clearly 
direct response to the contracts that the UAW signed. Um, but whether workers at those places appreciate that, who knows? Well, Dean Baker, I thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Dean Baker, Senior Economist and Co-Founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where he has an article, Things About the Economy, to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. We're going to take a restation break and back and go to Spain to look into similarities between the U.S. inasmuch as Spain's civil war never ended and neither did the American Civil War. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money, 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 money. There is nothing like a newly minted money, 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 money. Everyone must hanker for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 round. You can keep your watch's ways, for it's only just a phase. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Madrid, Spain, is Toby Miller, a professor of journalism at the Universidad Complutense de Madrid in Spain, who is also a research professor of the graduate division at the University of California at Riverside and the former Stuart Hall Professor of Cultural Studies at the Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana in Mexico City. His most recent books are A COVID Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, Colombian Popular Culture, and How Green Is Your Smartphone. Welcome to Background Briefing, Toby Miller. It's great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks, uh, Toby. And what's happening in Spain is sort of somewhat going under the radar. With Over this uh, last weekend, there were huge protests in Madrid, the capital. 170,000 people marched through Madrid on Saturday, and there have been previous demonstrations of a similar size. And it's a pretty much a a right-wing rebellion going on in Spain against the new socialist government. And it almost feels like either the Spanish Civil War didn't end or it's coming back. How, How does it strike you being on the ground there? Well, Ian, many of us feel as though the English Civil War did end. The American Civil War definitely didn't end. And the Spanish Civil War is more than just a memory. Uh, There are plenty of people who were enslaved, terrorized, and tortured under the Franco regime right up until the 70s, and they're still alive. So yes, it's still very present. And the most left-wing members of the governing coalition, which is a stitch up, as it were, or stitch together of various parties, the most left-wing ones claim that it wouldn't matter how many seats they had won in parliament, their legitimacy as a governing group would never be accepted by the right, who still think that everybody should be a right-wing Catholic and everyone should be a fellow traveller of the old dictatorship. And that is the kind of people that demonstrated uh, over the weekend against this new government? In part, yes, uh, although it's needs to be noted that there were demonstrations not only here in Madrid, but right across the country. And we should also note that in terms of public opinion, a couple of months ago, a poll was taken that showed that more than two thirds of the voting population is opposed to the deal that the Socialist Party did to stay in power. And in fact, 
uh, a little over 50% of socialist voters felt that way. So, yes, it's a right-wing movement, no doubt about that, but there are plenty of people on the soft left in particular and in the centre who don't like the deal which was cut, which we can talk about in a moment. Uh, and also there are some elements who marched who are on the extreme left but who are nationalistic. There are a couple of Leninist splinter groups splintered away from the left that don't like environmentalism, don't like feminism, don't like trans rights and especially don't like immigrant rights and they form part of this block. But it's largely older people who are from the comfortable middle classes and young people who are from the elite. How do I know this? Well, I've been to one of these demonstrations, but also I live on a street that lots of these people walked through on their way to and from the big demonstration. And on Saturday night at about 10.30 or 11, you could barely hear yourself think or even watch Netflix for the noises down in the street below as they were chanting what they thought were triumphant songs of achievement. And these are what songs against socialists or against uh, yes. the Catalan and Basque nationalists and the amnesty law? They are, yes, that's correct. Absolutely. In favour of what they think is Spain. And Spain for them means only the Castilian language or Spanish, if you like, and it means no independent rights for the various semi-autonomous regions of Spain. It means that they should be just the one language, just the one country, and so on. But that's a struggle that's um, never, never ended and has shown no signs of ending. What other country do you know of, Ian, that has a national anthem with no words in it? We can't have one with words because no one can agree on what they would be. Really? So it's just the music? It's just the music. <laughs> so you've got this amnesty law, which is for the Catalan independent movement. And what was the deal done with the Basque nationalists? In other words, what you have is, by the sound of it, what you're telling us is, in the capital of Madrid, you have a pocket of the old guard right wing. And then across the country, you've got these new semi-autonomous nationalist states incorporated in a multicultural left. Is that right? Yes, except that one of the things that the Anglo-Saxon liberal left has never really got its teeth into when it comes to Catalonia in particular is that there are very real splits within Catalan nationalists. And specifically, this amnesty applies to members mostly of Junts. And Junts is the political party run by Carlos Puigdemont, who is a member of the European Parliament. He has been in exile from Spain, along with several of his colleagues, for some years because they unconstitutionally, illegally, held, as some of your listeners may recall, a plebiscite in Catalonia for independence from Spain. They lost the plebiscite, but even holding it was deemed to be an illegal act. Now, although they're on the right, their votes are essential for the socialists and their other coalition allies to form a majority in parliament and hence remain in government. And so what happened was um, Pedro Sanchez, who is the president slash prime minister and head of the Socialist Party, agreed that he would provide amnesty both to the left-wing bloc of Catalan separatists and to this right-wing bloc, Junts, in return for their support. Now, the support has gone through, 
But of course, the amnesty itself has to pass the Senate, which is run by the right. And if it passes the Senate, it has to go through the courts, which are also run by the right here. And if it gets through them, it has to go through the European Union. So there are all kinds of obstacles to see whether this uh, amnesty really works. In terms of what it means for the Basques, they are not covered by it, nor do they need to be. But like the two blocks of Catalan separatists, the Basques will vote with the socialists if for no other reason than that they are regarded as criminals by the right who will not recognize their legitimacy. Specifically, the right doesn't recognize the legitimacy of former members of ETA, which was a you know, guerrilla, in inverted commas, terrorist group of Basque separatists from the 60s on, who served time in prison, got out of jail legitimately, and are now in parliament. The right doesn't accept their legitimacy to be there. So sorry for the long answer, but it's as complicated oh. as our politics here. Well, but let's go back to what you were saying earlier, because I think it applies to what's happening here in the United States, that the civil war in the United States never ended and the civil war in Spain never ended, although it's still within the living memory of some who participated and were tortured by Franco. Obviously, there aren't any veterans of the civil war left, but politically speaking, in much of the red states you have, particularly in the South, you still have the feudal tradition going back to the Civil War. And as you know, when Nixon came up with the Southern strategy in response to Johnson's civil rights and the Democrats' civil rights passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1965, uh, Johnson knew when he signed that act that, he'd be, that the Democrats would lose the South. So now the Republicans have the South and they have the Dixiecrats, they have the former unreconstructed racists, and that lives on in our politics. And now, of course, we're getting more and more racist. And now we're having, a, in terms of public announcements and public acceptance of violent, racist, reactionary speech coming from the leader of the Republican Party, Donald Trump. And it's not inconceivable. And he's becoming more and more, he's revealing more and more the fact that he's really a fascist at heart that we have the possibility of a fascist takeover here in the United States. So what can we learn here from the mistakes made by the Spanish left, particularly with Podemos, which became a, a very popular party on the, on the left that emerged very quickly and then shattered itself and fell apart because of identity politics and, and extreme, I guess, wokeness is the word they use nowadays. Well, I think in the case of Podemos, it's been subsumed within a new bloc for the left, which won quite a lot of votes in the recent elections, named Sumar. And Sumar, S-U-M-A-R, is run, run by Yolanda Diaz, a very charismatic labor lawyer who comes from a communist party tradition. And basically what Sumar did was to say to the people in Podemos and others who are to the left of a socialist party, which essentially is like the left of the Democrats, nothing more. Sumar said, let's be grown-ups. Let's focus on issues that really matter to working people. And that was crucial to the right not winning the last election that was held only a matter of weeks ago. So I think one lesson for the Democratic Party is that it has successfully won over educated people 
in the United States. It has certainly lost the Dixiecrats that were, as you say, but it is losing Latinos and it is losing some African-Americans at the same rate as it is gaining people who are highly educated. And it has suffered in the past from losing a connection with the white working class. It risks losing a connection with the black and Latino-Latina working class as well. And this is where I think the socialists did well in the last election. They realized they had to reconnect with the working class, which doesn't mean forgetting identity. There are plenty of trans and immigrant working people. It just means being in touch with the needs that that large class block has, because they'll never win over the right wing nationalists. And the right wing nationalists have an overlap with the working class, but it's by no means absolute. And the same applies in the United States. So in terms of fascism coming back in Spain, is that a possibility, even though you, you, where you live in Madrid, it's largely the stronghold of of this reactionary, what is it, it's a combination of Vox, the new right-wing party, and the old Republican right conservative party, right? Yes, that's right. The reactionary tendency in Spain is a combination of the Partido Popular, or Popular Party, which is rather like, say, the Christian Democrats in Italy or Germany, or the sort of centre-right of the Republican Party in the United States, if such a thing still exists. Or no, it doesn't president. exist. <laughs> yes, quite. You know, we all miss Elliot Richardson, don't we, Ian? Right. So, who, who, of course, was a, a liberal. Uh, in any event, the, the Partido Popular is meant to be like the Christian Democrats, but it includes some crypto-fascist elements. Vox really is a fascist tendency. The uh, woman who is the mayor of Madrid, Isabel Diaz Ayuso, is in the Partido Popular, but she's far, far right. She has friends who are in the Falange, who are the descendants of the Hitler right wing of the Franco government. And she puts pressure on the top, the head of the Partido Popular, Alberto Núñez Feijóo, to go further and further right. So, yes, those tendencies are real. But here's the good news. A few months ago, there were municipal and regional elections right across Spain that were a triumph for Vox. And Vox and the Partido Popular entered into coalitions in order to be able to govern huge sways of the country. But then Pedro Sanchez, the socialist prime minister or president, decided within a matter of hours to hold a snap national election. And he held it arguing to older progressive voters who had swung behind this new nationalistic right, that in fact it was going further and faster than they really wanted and they should return to the fold of working class interests. And they largely did. So the traditional working class vote swung back to the socialists and to Sumar in our recent national elections. And that's what prevented the Partido Popular and Vox from being able to govern. Vox lost seats in this election. Right, but so, just to, let's apply that to the United States. We're given that Trump is the head of the Republican Party. He's even ahead in the polls vis-a-vis uh, -vis a matchup, a second matchup with uh, Joe Biden. And it's extraordinary that anybody would vote for this guy. He's just a horrible, cruel, sadistic, stupid person who, as, as his record is just appalling. 
and who's already made clear that if he takes over, the first thing he'll do is invoke the Interaction Act and declare martial law and then go after his enemies in pure Hitlerian fashion. So the, the writing's on the wall about who this guy is and what he plans to do, yet you've got a whole bunch of people in this country that support him and they don't believe the mainstream press or anything. They, you know, they're immune from facts. So how do you apply the lessons that just took place in Spain to the Democratic Party, which doesn't seem to have a strong narrative and, and a, a sense of direction? I think there are two lessons to be learned for the Democratic Party. One is to get its minority voices that are very important, like the squad, no, AOC and friends, to speak up as they often do for the working classes in general, to make it clear that they are there to represent Christian working class people, Jewish working class people, white working class people, as well as the minority constituencies with which they are associated, and to try to get more dialogue going over those questions. And when it comes to issues like the two major war conflicts involving the United States in a sort of surrogate role in Gaza uh, and in Ukraine, to speak about the Democratic Party as the party of national interest, however complicated that may be, and national interest being understood as the importance for the United States of making peace around the world and respecting territorial sovereignty. I think that there is a flank of the Republican Party that is vulnerable on Ukraine, just as there is a flank of a Democratic Party that is vulnerable on Israel. They need to take a lead on that, and they need to take a lead on this issue of getting a sense of being the voice of working America. And it's that latter point that I think comes directly from what the socialists and Sumar have managed to do. And the other point about foreign policy is where they say they stand for Spain, but it's a new Spain as well as an old Spain, whereas the right here is speaking only for a Spain from their fantastical imaginations and the horror of a fallen dictatorship. But just in closing, when you talk about respecting sovereignty, it's the Russians who invaded Ukraine. It's, it's not the Ukrainians that are not respecting sovereignty. It's the Russians. Oh, I quite agree. But uh, it appears to me, obviously at some distance, that one of the ways in which the Republicans have gone anti-Ukrainian, which is crazy given that Ukrainian-Americans have been an important part of their base, is to forget about that absolute principle that you invoke of national sovereignty. And I think the United States should speak up for national sovereignty on that front. And that should be one of the Democrats' key right. points in the coming... And, and, and apologize for the Iraq war? <laughs> well, I think in his own slightly bumbling way, certain elements of President Biden's bloc have managed to do that, um, but not as fully and as comprehensively as they should. Well, Tavi Miller, I thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Toby Miller, who is a professor of journalism at the Universidad Complutense de Madrid in Spain. 
He's also a research professor of the Graduate Division of the University of California, Riverside, and the former Stuart Hall Professor of Cultural Studies at the Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana in Mexico City. And his most recent books are A COVID Charter, A Better World, Violence, The Persistence of Violence, Colombian Popular Culture, and How Green Is Your Smartphone. And he joined us from Madrid, Spain. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.